Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Very excited about our next guest, Roots Music Aficionado. I'm going to say Rockabilly Leviathan. If that's uh, too strong, then, you know, correct me when you see me. The mighty Deke Dickerson, ladies and gentlemen. Let's roll. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, from the quasi-glorious Orange Room here in beautiful Wauwatosa. And today we have the majestic Deke Dickerson. And uh, Deke has done many things, doggone it. Not only is he a potentate of rockabilly axemanship, roots guitar axemanship in general, but he's also an author, doggone it, a, a soundtrack composer, of course, a recording artist. And um, doggone it, he's a good buddy of my buddy Carl Wallen as well. So we got all kinds of stuff to talk about. And uh, so joining us from his home in beautiful California, Deke, how the heck are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, sir. It is a pleasure. It's good to finally actually meet you. You know, for years I've I've heard your name and, and especially out at NAMM shows. And they're like, you should go to the Deke Dickerson, you know, Guitar Bacchanal. I believe it's called the Guitar Geek Festival or whatever the case may be. And of course, every time at NAMM over the years, it's like, you know, you get done doing what you got to get done during the day. The only thing I'm thinking about is where am I going to eat and where's my bed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I quit doing the festival at NAM. You know, it was such a pain in the butt, and uh, uh, man, you know, ten million things going on there anyway. So it was a lot of competition. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about you're from Missouri originally, and right. Columbia, Missouri, at that. So I uh, I was wondering if you were uh, uh, buddies with the Bel Air guys. Oh, absolutely. If you know them, um, man. When I was super duper young. Uh, there used to be kind of a biker bar sort of on the outskirts of town uh, called the Gladstone Brewing Company. And and you could get in there if you were underage. And so, you know, my dad would take me down there and we'd see the Bel Airs play. And and then maybe a couple years after that, I started being able to sneak into the local rock club because I was already six feet tall. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't, didn't try to go to the bar and get a drink. You know, I just wanted to see the band play. And man, I saw the Bel Airs play a million times. And this was way, way, way back when they were a four-piece band with ah. Mike Henderson, who played second guitar. If you don't oh, know who Mike Henderson is, he's a Nashville songwriter, mandolin player, slide blues guitar player, uh, and they were they were amazing back in those days. Indeed. So I was going to ask you, like, how did you? Because we're uh, I'm I'm a big two years older than you. So I'm a real whippersnapper. But, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't start getting into uh, the roots-oriented, you know, like, especially the the way back stuff until actually I got into college. I mean, I was into the blues stuff, and I started to get into the country stuff by way of, you know, guys like Albert Lee and Ray Flack and Roy Buchanan and stuff like that. And then I met, you know, our mutual buddy, Carl, 
And uh, his uncle, who's actually only a couple years older than he is, it's kind of a northern Wisconsin thing, but uh, he also went to school there and he played um, he played guitar, he was a guitar major. And, and I'd say, do this, some of that Merle Travis stuff. And he'd go into his guitar case and he'd open up the little compartment, he'd get out a little Sucrets container and he'd take out the mythical thumb pick and he would start doing that stuff. And it was a thing of wonder. And I thought one of these days, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to do that stuff. But to me, it was always, there had to be a family member, it seemed. There was always like an uncle or a dad or a brother that was into that stuff in order to, was the entree. So I'm just curious, where did your fascination with roots music in general start from and how was it cultivated? Well, before I answer that question, uh, remind me, we, I have to tell my good Roy Buchanan story after this. Yes, please. But, uh, to answer your question, um, you know, my dad was into cool music. He listened to Hank Williams and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he was a good old hillbilly from Virginia that moved out to Missouri. And there was a lot of country guys out there that, uh, you know, those country guys, they would always play stuff like 50s rock and roll type stuff. So that kind of stuff was sort of in my consciousness. But, you know, going to school with all the other kids, they were into Kiss and things like that, you know. But uh, I'll never forget, uh, man, I must have been, I don't know, seven or eight years old. I saw Chuck Berry on TV and he was playing the big hollow body Gibson and doing the duck walk. And I just looked and said... That, that, how, how, do, how do I do that? How, how quickly can I start doing that? That's what I need to do. I, I need to get one of those things and, and do that. Right. And, and that was all That was all she wrote, man. It was like from that day forward, I was just into 50s rock and roll and, and all the various branches of roots music that, that sprung from that, you know, be it country, blues, doo-wop, surf, uh, you know, et cetera. Excellent. Was, so what it was, was your it was a life changing moment, you know, seeing Chuck I would imagine, you know, it was kind of similar for me, but with Jimi Hendrix, when I saw him playing, you know, you know, through his legs and burning guitars and stuff, I thought, you know what, not only is there great music involved, but there's fire. So yeah. that seemed appetizing. But um, so what was your, how did it all begin? Was your dad like, Hey, let's get you a guitar. Did he actually play himself? You said he played? No, my dad uh, famously jokes that he uh, can't even play the radio. <laughs> but uh, I did have other relatives, uh, you know, in previous generations that played music. My, my grandma played every instrument that you put in your hands. And, uh, you know, my other grandpa played guitar. And so there was music going back. But once I decided that I wanted to play guitar, I, you know, I, I asked for a guitar for Christmas and I had picked out this guitar at the local music store. It was a Framus 335 copy. It was $100. And I picked it out because it looked like the Gibson ES355 that I saw Chuck Berry playing on TV. Right. And uh, so I got this Framus and the action was about that far off the fretboard. <laughs> and uh, I met this guy from Europe. Uh, he was a French guy, but he said, yes, we have a saying uh, in Europe, uh, you can't get famous on a Framus. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that's not to that's not to disparage the current Framus company because they make some fine guitars, but yes, you know, indeed, those old ones with all the like the thirty two laminations in the neck and everything uh, they were they were pretty terrible. I still have that guitar, by the way. <laughs> uh, so you know, I struggled along on that thing for a while, and uh, and then uh, mowed mowed lawns all summer long to save up and buy a like a brand new three bolt Stratocaster. And, ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Man, that thing was terrible. I mean, you, it was like one of the worst one. You know, black pick guard, black pickups, the big oh, yeah. headstock. And when you changed from a D to an A string or A chord, you'd hear the, the neck pocket go. Err! 
right. and it would go all out of tune. Uh, and so then, you know, my dad kind of helped me out after, after all that, he, he, he found a guy, an old country guy out in the, you know, out in the boonies that was selling a Gibson ES-335 and a Fender uh-huh. twin amp. And so once I got that 335 and that twin reverb, then I was in business and I had my first band, uh, when I was 14 or 15 called the rock and tail fins and, uh, beautiful. kind of been going at it ever since. And, and actually the twin reverb segues into the Royal, uh, the Roy Buchanan story, if you want yes. to read it. So I, I had this silver face twin reverb amp, you know, and I thought this is the greatest thing ever because it's so loud. Right. I mean, <laughs> when you're, when you're 13 years old and you're really terrible, I mean, volume is a great <laughs> thing to have in your arsenal, you know? So, uh, like I said, I'd sort of been sneaking into shows and uh, eventually I began playing shows in the clubs around town. They were all kind of cool with me because I didn't drink and I was six feet tall, didn't look like an underage kid. And Roy Buchanan was coming to town and the club owner said, you know, Roy Buchanan is asking for a silver face master volume twin reverb in his rider. And you have one of those things. Could we borrow it for the show? And I was like, yeah, this is that'd be fantastic to have Roy Buchanan playing through my amp. Wow. And so, you know, this is like a real showbiz lesson for a a 14 year old kid. There was a opening band and they played forever. And finally the word got out that uh, Roy Buchanan was late, you know, and, and he was really late. He was like three hours late. He didn't show up until, you know, 1230 or something like that way past my bedtime. And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting there for Roy Buchanan and he shows up, he walks in the door, he's got the Telecaster. Oh my God, it's Roy Buchanan, it's really him. And his band take the stage, you know, and they've got their back line provided for them. And I see Roy Buchanan plug into my twin reverb and then just dime out every single knob. And then he starts playing Little Wing. That's the first song he played. And it's just, it's louder than anything has ever been ever. In, in the world, ever. Right. right? In this little club, there's maybe 150 people in there. It's so loud. And about four and a half minutes into Little Wing, Roy Buchanan uh, blew up my twin reverb. (laughs) And of course, then it's like, oh, well, what do we do? You know, and then there's like another 45 minute wait while somebody like goes and gets some other amp from somebody's house. And then he plays like three songs at the end of the show. I never even got to meet the guy. He was just out the door as soon as he was done with his set. Bless him. And uh, and then and then it was like, oh well, I have this twin reverb that Roy Buchanan blew up. Uh, the the club owner paid for some new speakers. God bless him. And uh, the speakers. Oh, so he blew the speakers. He did, yeah. And uh, the speakers that Roy Buchanan blew up are still hanging in my dad's barn back in Missouri, uh, way up there in the rafters. Uh, Buchananized. Yeah. You know, I had a similar amp to that. I had a um, I had a silver face twin master volume twin uh with Altec lansing speakers in it that thing is oh. louder than the word of god Good yeah if you want to if you want to make a twin even more painful and heavy to carry just put some Altex <laughs> or jbls in there <laughs> it's, it's weird to think that there actually was a time that clubs were so packed and so noisy that you needed that amp exactly because that doesn't exist that. anymore boy you can barely get away with a super reverb I mean, you bring one of those in, I mean, oh, we, what are you going to do? 
We did our first gig back uh, from the quarantine uh, at a club in Orange County this last weekend. And I brought along this 1952 Tweed Pro that I use with my band Deacon the Whippersnappers. And this was an outdoor gig. I mean, there's 48 seats. They're all spaced six feet apart. Right. And the first row of seats is like 15 feet away from the stage. And I have the Tweed Pro on two. Two. And the sound person says, you've you've really, you've got to turn that amp down. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, wow, my 1952 amp on, you know, 18 watts or whatever it is on two. It's too loud. Oh, that's for an so outdoor, aggravating. Outdoor show. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> so when when it so pretty early on, obviously you because you were into roots oriented music, you were into the vintage thing right away. I would imagine. Did you start collecting right away? Were you like obsessed from the get go, or was it not a thing yet? You were more well. Into the music. It, it wasn't really a thing yet. People just called them used guitars or old guitars. I don't remember vintage guitars really being used until you know, maybe Tysco Del Rey started writing his column in, uh, in Guitar right. Player Magazine. That was kind of in the late 80s, maybe. And, and then Vintage Guitar Magazine started in the early 90s. But yeah, back, back in the, the early mid 80s, they were just used guitars. And really what got me started on all that was that terrible uh, late 70s three-bolt Stratocaster. It was like, this thing is brand new. Why is it so terrible? <laughs> and then, you know, then somebody said like, yeah, man, the old ones are better. It was like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking, how could an old thing be better? And, and my dad right. actually, uh, my dad grew up, uh, I grew up with him restoring antique airplanes. So I had a lot of this influence that, you know, old stuff is really good. You know, they, the metals were better, the wood was better, the construction was better. And so it kind of just sent me down that path. Awesome. So what were some of your first procurements after that? Well, you know, I was into rockabilly uh, so I went through the steep learning curve of Gretsch instruments. Ah, uh, indeed. And, you know, I, I have come to appreciate vintage Gretsch instruments, uh, but in the words of Duke Kramer, who was about 90 years old when he said this quote, he said, uh, on the days that they had good drugs, they made good instruments. On the days they had bad drugs, they made bad instruments. And there's just a lot of really terrible vintage Gretsch guitars out there. I, I hate to tell you. So I, I went through about three or four of those, you know, had a Gretsch Viking, had a double cutaway 6120. Uh, I had a, like a early fifties electromatic non cutaway and, you know, they were cool as hell and they sounded great, but man, it was like you were fighting them the whole right. time. Just fighting, fighting, fighting. And so, you know, finally I, I realized like, well, and maybe the Gretsch thing is just not for me. So I've always kind of been into uh, old Gibsons, old Fenders, and then also this kind of weird thing of Moserites and, Mose right, yeah, yeah. and, and, and things like that. But, you know, even mm-hmm. on Moserites, it's like you really got to play one before you buy it because there's so many uh, wonky ones out there. Yeah, I, I remember, <clears throat> you know, after I met Carl up and we went to school in beautiful Stevens Point, Wisconsin, his uh, his uncle had this record, uh, and it was Joe Maphis and Merle Travis, and I believe he was playing a Moserite on that record. He was on the cover, of it. and that just it just scared the bejesus out of me. I was like, "How is it possible uh, for this music to be played?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so how early on were you exposed to this stuff and, and delving into like, you know, uh, 
the the Merle Travis, Joe Mathis, and Jimmy Bryant, all these all these cats? Well, you know, like I said, I was really in the fifties rock and roll. So when I started playing guitar, it was Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly, and uh, you know that those were my guys. Carl Perkins, Scotty Moore playing with Elvis. They're still my guys. I still love that stuff. Sure. But then I remember finding a copy of the Jimmy Bryant and Speedy West Two Guitars Country Style right. album. Uh, and this is way before anything had been reissued or anything, you know, CDs didn't even exist yet. I found a copy of this record for 10 cents. And I thought, well, this looks cool. And I, and I put it on and it's Jimmy Bryant. And he's going... And I had that same reaction that you did. Like, how is this even possible that somebody right. is playing this fast? And so, you know, that kind of sent me down the road of, of those guys. Uh, you know, I discovered Joe Mapis and Larry Collins and Merle Travis and all those guys right after that, basically from finding used records at garage sales or at the local record store. Uh, and then my dad was really into blues. So we saw a lot of blues guys come through Columbia, Missouri and, uh, and then, you know, collected blues records too. And so, you know, had a pretty good education considering that I was in a small town in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of live music coming through and a lot of great records to be found there. So what point did you make the decision at a pretty young age that you were going to go out to California and, and why did you pick California as opposed to maybe Nashville or something like that? Well, so I had a band called the Untamed Youth and that was my first touring band, my first band that I made records with. We were kind of like a 60s surf garage band sort of thing and we had three or four albums out on a label called Norton Records out of New York City and so we started touring and we would go to New York and we would travel all around and and then we toured out to California this is like in the late 80s and you know I, I realized that it's very popular in the public opinion to hate Los Angeles I'm I'm firmly aware of that I, I don't need you to cover up for it if that's how you feel but I but, you know, I'm one of these people that, like, the first time I went to Los Angeles, I was like, how soon until I can live here? I've got to move here. How soon can that be? It was like seeing Chuck Berry on TV. Right. And so uh, we toured out to California a couple of times and, and uh, made some friends and connections and everything. And so the Untamed Youth lost half our band members. They quit on us. And so myself and the bass player, who's also my stepbrother, we moved out to California. I loved it out there. I'm still out here. He didn't like it so much. He moved back to Missouri and, uh, you know, he's married and has kids and everything now. Uh, so Los Angeles is one of those places that appeals to certain people. And, and I, I really like it. I still like it. Well, the weather certainly appeals to me. You know, the, the weather is one thing. And, uh, I grew up in, I mean, you, you can probably relate. It's like, there's like a two week period in the spring where it's so nice in the Midwest. And there's a two week period in the fall where it's so nice. And then there's like that hot, humid summer. Right. And then there's like the, you know, four months of like winter, not really winter, just gray weather. And, you know, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, I don't miss that. I hate to tell you. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. Cause I, uh, what you just described is exactly correct. <laughs> I mean, it's, but I have to say, Wisconsin in the summer is my favorite place in the entire country. It oh can God. be glorious. Oh, right man. now, it's really nice. I have to say, it's it's beautiful. It's not too hot. Oh, 
Oh man, all that area around Lacrosse down there in the southwest part of the state, or oh, yeah. we're uh, up there, you know, Stevens Point, like you were talking about. Oh man, it is so pretty. I love it up there. Like I, I have actually said many times, if I was going to move somewhere else, it would probably be one of those places in Wisconsin I just described. Uh, it does have its moments. My uh, my family's had a um, a cottage up north for years, and it's now all my siblings and I kind of share it and. Boy, it's it's pretty spectacular to, uh, and of course, Milwaukee is a is a cool town. I mean, it's uh, it is a lot of stuff going on there. It's a big city, but but not, <laughs> and it's close enough to Chicago and whatnot. And so yeah, on and so I, I've I've had so many fun times in Milwaukee and Madison, and I used to play Green Bay all the time. Oh yeah, you know, so I, I've spent a lot of time up there, and I really really like it and love the bratwurst. Right. You know. I do like the brats. There's no question. Yeah. I, I'd and I've got the hookup. So next time you're around, I'll show you the, the Sweet. joint. Sweet. Hook you up with the real, the real stuff. Cause you know, you got to eat. You got to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about um, a little bit about what you're working on now. You got this new Merle Travis book coming. Just um, tell us how that kind of came to the fore and, and, what was the motivation to, to say something that's never been said before, all that kind of stuff? So, you know, I've written a couple other books, uh, The Strat in the Attic 1 and The Strat right. in the Attic 2, and those were both about finding vintage guitars and everything. And and so I was thinking about, well, what you know, what should be the next book that I should write? And it, it was really bothering me that Merle Travis did not have a biography out. It really didn't make any sense because this is a guy that did so much stuff. I mean, not only, you know, was the, the the master of this thumb picking style that bears his name, Travis? Right. But you know, he wrote these classic American folk songs, Sixteen Tons and Dark right, as right. a Dungeon and Smoke 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 That Cigarette and all that. And then, you know, he also was a major inventor of guitar things. He's the guy behind the Bigsby vibrato. He's the guy that basically uh, came up with the idea for the solid body electric guitar that Leo Fender saw and turned into the Telecaster. And we can get into some show and tell here in a minute about that if you want. Yes. But, uh, and you know, beyond that, it's like he, he did so many amazing things. He, he made all these records. He was a cartoonist. He, uh, I mean, just on and on. So it bothered me that he did not have any sort of book out there. I and didn't even know that's amazing. It was doubly strange because he was a great writer. I mean, out of, all the country music stars in the history of country music, he's probably the best writer there ever was. And he wrote tons and tons of stuff, but he never wrote an autobiography. So I met his two daughters that live out here in Southern California, uh, Merlene and Cindy. And I said, man, I want to write the Merle Travis book. Let's, let's make this happen. And, and you know, they were, they were into it and, I saw him a couple of times and then finally they said, well, you know, maybe you should come look and see what we have in the storage unit. And I'm, you know, of course I'm like, yes, yes, let's right. do that. And so basically after he died, they put all this stuff in a storage unit up in Santa Barbara and it just kind of has sat there the whole time. Like they haven't really gone through it. You know, Cindy has gone through some of the stuff and organized it uh, just in the last few years, but it kind of just sat up there for, three decades kind of untouched. And so we started going through all this stuff and there was about a hundred pages of raw unedited autobiography that he had never finished. You know, it only, only went up to about the year 1955, 
but uh, but you know, I said to them, I said, look, we, we can take this and, and get a like a, a book deal with this, no problem. So I approached uh, BMG Books, uh, which is part of the BMG you know record label sure. conglomerate. They've been doing a lot of cool music books, and I said, you know, look, we we found this much of an unedited raw autobiography, and I can write the rest. And we have all this other stuff in the storage unit, tons of pictures, memorabilia, etc. And they said yes. And so then I started working on the thing. Uh, it took me about three years of research and writing. Uh, you know, I had to make a field trip out to Kentucky where he's from and then visit all these other 90 something year old people that are still alive out in Nashville and Ohio and uh, places like that. Uh, so, it, you know, it was one of those things that at the end of the day, I probably made about eight cents an hour. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what's next? Acting? Like your first, <laughs> first guitar, then writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I'm actually very proud of it. It should be out by the end of the year. Um, I think it turned out really well. And I, I think that, uh, I did a, a good job on his legacy. Fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Cause I'm a, I'm a big fan of Merle Travis. It's one of those things where I'll go through different phases and, you know, and I, and I won't listen for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, my son was, uh, ripping some of my vinyl onto his computer so he could, you know, uh, work his magic with, you know, uh, sampling and whatnotery, and he loaded in um, walking the strings, right? And so I'm, I'm here, and I was like, man, I, I knew that at once, once upon a time. And so I figured it out again, and I was playing, and I was just like, you think to yourself, where did this guy, I mean, certainly, like, I think of, like, maybe Blind Blake and, and some of these old, you know, Piedmont-style individuals. I mean, it's just fascinating. Where did he draw most of that stuff from? That's a very good question because, you know, where he's from, Kentucky, uh, and then where he first started his career in Cincinnati, uh, those are two places where there's just a really interesting kind of uh, confluence of North and South and black and white and blues and jazz and country. And it kind of all comes together in that, that region. And so, you know, there was people or there were people that were playing the, the thumb style of guitar, like ragtime guys, like you were saying, uh, you know, African-American guitarists like Blind Blake and Blind Lemon Jefferson. And then there was a lot of, you know, white guys that were doing it too. And, you know, Merle was born in 1917. So he kind of came up in the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, his whole thing was like this fabulous mixture of music. It was like, Tin Pan Alley and pop songs and jazz and Dixieland and blues and and you know it was all this stuff that existed before rock and roll and so if you listen to any one of his albums you know like the the Merle Travis guitar or Walking the Strings or any of those kind of things it's just this wonderful representation of of that music that existed before rock and roll you know and and he right, really right. he really did it all and and transferred it to this amazing sort of syncopated thumb playing style that, uh, that he was the best at. Yeah. i tell you what the, uh, you know, I guess when you're first starting to learn guitar and you hear like, you know, the, the Travis style of picking, you always think the bass line's got to be do ding, don't ding, don't ding, and, and some kind of flowery thing on the top. But his thing was just trying to get that stride piano vibe happening the whole time. And that was, that was a big thing for me to, when I was learning the styles, like, you mean, I don't have to go a string, D string, E string, D string, you know, it's like more just getting yeah. that chunk going. Yeah. 
Well, and, and you know, if you're talking about thumb style guitar, you're talking about Merle Travis and Chet Atkins. Right. I, I love both of those guys, you know, but I'll always be a Merle guy because Merle was a guy that would like, he would get drunk, he would smoke some cigarettes, he would go hit on some girls, somebody would hand him a guitar, he'd play something that was just loose and bluesy and it was bouncing. Right. And, it, and it was like you were saying, it was like this thump, you know, and then he'd put that down and then he'd like, you know, go fishing or something. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas, whereas uh, you know, Chet Atkins was the guy that was like, you know. Very pristine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buttoned up and, you know, everything is, and, you know, and Chet, you know, would practice all the time. Right. And there's, there's an interesting story about the album that Merle and Chet did together in the early 1970s where they met in Hollywood and recorded together playing live. And then Chet took the tapes back to Nashville and took eight months redoing every single one of his parts, you know, over and over and over and over and over again until he got them absolutely perfect. Right. And, you know, that, that was the Chet style. He was great at it. But, sure. but it was so much, uh, how do I say this without offending anybody? He was just so much tighter. Sure. And I, I I like that loose kind of thing. That this, that's this I, I the kind of music to it I like that. all around. <laughs> you know, Chet style is kind of like a a stately galloping horse, whereas Merle Travis is more like it's this greasy. <laughs> yeah. And you know, they're both great. Chet, yeah, absolutely. There's no Chet question. Is, I mean, you watch some of those live TV clips of of Chet playing live uh, in the 1950s, and man, he's phenomenal. He's so yeah. precise and and musical at the same time. I mean, you can't fault the guy for not being musical. No question, very musical. We interrupt this gristle-infested conversation to give a shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Cox signature gristle tone pickups. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado, dig it all. All right, well, let's talk some guitars. I think you have a few treats lurking that you've brought into your domicile for us to go. If I was going to ask you about, you've got a, a signature guitar that looks really cool. It kind of looks like a Moserite Telecaster on the highway to Gretschville-ish. Yeah. Well, the, the Hallmark Company, uh, run by a friend of mine in Maryland, he uh, had reissued some old 60s guitars, uh, the Hallmark Swept Wing and a, thing, you know, a few other things like that. And I said, hey, let's do a, a new signature model. And I basically want it to be like Joe Maphis's Double Neck Moserite, but as a single neck guitar. And so we sort of imagined that as a uh, Telecaster meets a Moserite sort of a thing. And uh, I love it. I mean, as far as new guitars go, it's like the closest thing you could get to having something like that made for you in 1959 or something. And, and cool. uh, I've traveled all over, all over the world with that thing. And, and it's, it's a great instrument, I have to say. Awesome. Are they readily available or how, do, how does that work? No. The Hallmark Company is kind of one of these small boutique companies. And so we've had them made in real small batches and currently sold out, uh, but we're going to try to get another batch together. Uh, I mean, we were talking about it before all this coronavirus thing happened. Right, before uh, the pestilence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully we can get another batch uh, out there and sold before the locusts. Right. Now, I saw another guitar that you were playing, I, and it looked like a big 
kind of a, a Gibson-y, arch-toppy thing with the Bigsby and soap bars. But I, was that also a hallmark? Was that a special made thing? No. Um, so, you know, getting into this whole Merle Travis thing, I, I, I thought to myself, man, I've always wanted a Gibson Super 400. But, you know, Super 400s are ridiculously expensive. Right. And I should mention to the people out there uh, who are unfamiliar with what we're talking about, Merle Travis played a Gibson Super 400. In fact, he ordered this customized Gibson Super 400 in 1952 that was not only the most expensive guitar that Gibson had ever made, it was actually the most expensive guitar ever made in history up to that point, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, so I wanted, you know, a Gibson Super 400 like that. Um, make a long story short, I had this giant 18-inch blonde body, and I had it for a couple of years. And then I got this guy, Terry MacArthur in Nashville to, uh, to make a neck for it, to finish it up, uh, put some vintage P90s that I had laying around in a drawer on it. And uh, so I basically uh, made a replica of an early 50s Gibson Super 400. And it's a beautiful nice. car. Terry makes wonderful necks. So I've really been enjoying that and, you know, doing my whole Scotty Moore, Earl Travis thing. Right. Cool. Well, do you have any of these things handy that we might be able to visualize or did you grab some uh, other I, things of interest? I grabbed some other things of interest and, uh, you know, I was even trying to think uh, in terms of Wisconsin, you know, so yes. uh, I'll try to make this story very brief. There was a guitar player, a, a country guitar player named Gino King, and he played with a bunch of people back in the old days. He played with little Jimmy Dickens for about 15 years. He played with Carl Smith. He played with Ray Price. Uh, you know, just one of those kind of career country players. And there was this album by him that you'd find every now and then called Bang Bang Guitar by Gino King. And oh, look at that. Holding this double neck Moserite on the cover. And you can tell by looking at the cover, this is a pretty unusual one. It's like bird's eye maple with a walnut stripe down the center of it. And I thought, man, how cool is that? So I tracked Gino down. He was oh. living in a like a sort of subsidized retirement home, uh, you know, like uh, just in downtown La Crosse, Wisconsin. Oh, no way. Yeah. And uh, he was from up in that area originally. And, you know, he had wound up there again uh, in his later years. And he was in pretty bad shape. You know, he had, he had lived pretty, pretty hard life. But, uh, you know, I went up to this place that I, I want to spend some time with you, just talk to you about guitars, see your scrapbook, whatever. And <laughs> he was one of these guys that had no filter. And the first words out of his mouth when we started looking through his scrapbook, we're talking about a very famous female country singer and how good she was in the oral department. <laughs> and it just kind of... It kept going like that for about four hours, just stories of him taking LSD. And, you know, it, it made me realize like, oh, so these country Western guys were like, they were pirates, absolutely on a par with Keith Richards or Johnny Thunders. Sure. Absolutely. The only difference is, is that, you know, then they, they were all like Baptists or Methodists. And so right. you know, then they had to be like, they couldn't really talk about that stuff or brag about it. It's, but right. they all, you know, this, this guy had stories that literally would blow your hat off in the creek. So I asked him about this Moserite double neck and he said, well, he was touring with Leroy Van Dyke in the mid seventies and Leroy was jealous of the double neck because it was getting more attention than, than he was. <laughs> so Leroy forced him to sell 
the double neck in Colorado when they were on the road and he was brokenhearted about it. Well, I went home maybe four or five months later, a Moseride double neck popped up in Colorado, bird's eye maple, walnut stripe. I'm like, that's Gino's guitar. That's Gino's guitar. I, I, I have to buy this guitar and get it back to him somehow. And so I bought the guitar on eBay. Uh, I was actually going back up there to play that uh, casino in Green Bay that we used to play all the time. So Ho-Chunk Casino. Yeah, made a made a special trip to lacrosse. And, uh, and at the time, I, I kind of thought I would just like give it back to him, you know. And man, when I got up there, he was in such bad shape. I knew that he didn't really have very long to live. So we made an arrangement with uh, Dave, you know, from Dave's sure. shop up there. And he, he was a super solid guy, very cool guy. He made a big sort of, uh, you know, honorary display, displaying the guitar and Gino's albums. And Gino came down there and we took pictures of him with the guitar and he cried and, and, uh, and then he died about six weeks after that. Oh. Uh, but, but it was a, a really amazing thing to, uh, to, to put that guitar back in his hand. So I have that guitar right here. I'll show you. Yes. This is, uh, this is the 1965 Moseride double neck that little Jimmy Dickens bought for Gino King. And, uh, let's see if I can scroll back. It's That's glorious. As as, if you've seen these things before, this one's pretty unusual, not only for the bird's eye maple and the walnut stripe, it's got an extra knob down here, an extra switch. Uh, but maybe my favorite detail on this is the back. It's got this purple oh, look at that. sunburst. I mean, it's just crazy. So uh, so there must not have been a whole lot of double neck Moserites made, right? You know, there's more than you would think. Um, I, I always like to joke that there's there's actually way more supply than there is demand. Um, every time, every time some store gets a Moserite double neck in, they eagerly contact Deke Dickerson. I'm like, I I have like four of these things, man. I don't really need another Moserite double neck. Uh, but the you know the Gino King one is just so beautiful, and, and I have to say that. You know, the, the six-string neck is okay, but the 12-string neck on that thing is by far the best electric 12-string I have ever played. It oh, plays no way. It sounds fantastic. It's better than any Rickenbacker I've ever played. I know. Don't get mad at me. But it, if you put your hands on this thing, man, that's a magic neck right there. Excellent. That's an uh, awesome story. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that I could publish all of Gino's, uh, you know, Memoirs. Nashville Babylon stories that he told me, but I can't. But uh, if if any of you see me uh, at a show in person sometime and you want to hear some of Gino's stories, I can tell you a few that, that will entertain you. Yes, indeed. Well, what else do you have handy? Let me see here. Ah, well, okay. Uh, are you a fan of Link Ray at all? Yes, Absolutely. So I wrote a chapter in my first uh, Strat in the Attic book about this guitar. Um, you know, Link had a few guitars. He recorded Rumble in 1957 with a Gibson Goldtop Les Paul. Okay. And then right after that, he bought a Dan Electro guitar Lynn, uh, which is commonly referred to as the Longhorn. And right. he took a couple of really famous, iconic pictures of Link Ray holding this Dan Electro Longhorn guitar. And, you know, nobody knew what happened to the guitar. There basically weren't any photos of that guitar after 1961 or 62. 
it just kind of disappeared. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, this guitar turned up on eBay with a very plausible story, and it was unplayable. There was a, a neck body joint that was just, you know, completely screwed up. Um, but the guy had this story that one of the members of Link Ray's band traded him this guitar for a stack of jazz albums in 1962. And so I bought the guitar on eBay. It wound up not selling for very much because it was in such poor condition. And, you know, the, the provenance was sort of like, mm, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Right. But then I, I spent uh, a couple of years trying to track down, you know, the story on this thing. And what's interesting is that Wisconsin really plays a part in this because uh, Link toured with his guitar in 1959 and there's tours of him or there's pictures of him on tour in Wisconsin playing this Dan Electro Longhorn guitar. <laughs> now, when I got the thing, uh, if we have any guitar geeks here, I'm sure we do, you know how Dan Electro bridges operate. It's kind of a unique design. They've got this plate and then it sits on top of two screws in the front and then it's got a screw going down through it in the back, right? Right. Well, now if you're an idiot and you're on the road, like a teenage rock and roll guy, you can't really figure out how this thing works. So then you just wind up putting all three screws in the top of the bridge. Well, then it's, then it's too low. It's not sitting upright. So that's how it was when I got it. I took it to a guy named Steve Sost, who's a Dan Electro expert out here. And he said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but look what was underneath the string, the, the, the bridge on this thing. There was a matchbook to a bank in the D.C. area of Virginia, which is where Link lived. Right. And then there was a matchbook from a pizza place in La Crosse, Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And so I'm like, okay, this is, these are very good clues. So then I set out to try to find out if Link had ever played in La Crosse. And what I, what I found out by going there, this is like the third time that I went to lacrosse after visiting with Gino, uh, was that there was a place there that was the main concert venue. Everybody played there. And if you turned right out of the parking lot and drove half a block down, there was the pizza place where that matchbook cover came from. Ah. And I never could find out if Link actually played at that place in 1959. But I did find out that he played in all these other cities in Wisconsin with the Longhorn during that period of time in 1959. Now, I could keep going with uh, all these little guitar geeky details. You'll have to read the chapter in the book for that. But uh, but basically, I'm about 99% sure that this is Link Ray's Dan Electro guitar. So let me grab it. Excellent. This this is oh. this is it, and like I said, he didn't play rumble on this thing, but uh, this is the guitar that he used on Rawhide and a bunch of the the records that he made for Epic Records in 1958 and 1959. Awesome. And then he had a few other weird guitars after that. He had a you know a Supro Dual Tone, he had right. a Gibson Firebird, and uh, then went on to play like some weird Yamaha guitars and things like that later on. Uh, but when I got it, it had no knobs on it. And uh, I was looking at these pictures where, see if I can angle this so you can oh, yeah. see the glare. He had these red knobs on his Dan Electro. And, 
And I couldn't figure that out. And then I remembered that he played one of those premier amps from the 50s. And I saw a picture of one of those on Reverb. And sure enough, there were those red knobs on the premier amp. And so, uh, again, after scouring the internet for a while, I I finally found some premier amp knobs to put on there, just like he had had back in the 1950s. Because perfect. If you know anything about those original Dan Electro concentric uh, volume tone things with the little right. pointer knob, those pointer knobs just fall off immediately. That You can never find those. That's crazy. Yeah, so, you know, there, there's another Wisconsin tie-in as he dragged this thing all around Wisconsin in 1959. And I, I'm Debauched, convinced. I'm sure. Debauched I'm, activities yeah. in Wisconsin. Well, and you know what? what's really weird is that, uh, you know, Buddy Holly did the tour, the Winter Dance Party, uh, in February 1959, and then you know those three guys got killed in the plane crash in Clear Lake, Iowa. Right. And like literally two weeks later, Link Ray and all these guys—they're on the spring dance party tour, put on by the same people. Like they didn't slow down at all. Like, oh yeah, we had a plane crash, a bunch of guys died, but here's our next tour. And oh. you know, can you imagine how you would have felt, like Link Ray and those guys, like? Uh, yeah, we're, we're playing the same places where all those other guys did. Oh man. Crazy, huh? But the history of this stuff is is wild. Well, some people appreciate it. I'm sure we've probably, uh, put a sleepy glazed look on, uh, on some people's look out there. Oh, I don't think so. It's, it's all fascinating. You know, I did wanted to ask you, speaking of old cool gear, you've got one of those echo sonic amps right That's right yeah but what what is the deal with the, i mean is that what scotty moore used with the tape echo on it and that kind of stuff yeah so it was basically the first uh i think the first guitar effect but it was built into the amplifier it wasn't like a standalone effect and saying that i'm trying to remember if that if it predates the dearman tremolo or not but they came out right around the same time anyway uh, you know, tape echo was a thing, but it was just a recording studio thing. You had to have right. big tape machines to make it happen. Um, so this guy in Cairo, Illinois, named Ray Butts, he designed this amplifier, and it was a pretty basic small amplifier. I mean, sort of like a Tweed Princeton or maybe a Tweed Deluxe. Uh, and then he built a, a tape section down in the bottom of it. And the first one that he sold went to Chet Atkins. And then the next one that he sold went to Scotty Moore. And they really have a unique sound. I mean, there's nothing else that sounds like these things. And it's just got a fixed slapback echo. You can't change the length of the echo. Right. Um, but man, you know, it's, it just has that sound. And I think they made... If I recall correctly, 67 of them originally. And I would say maybe nowadays there's eight or nine that are known to exist. Wow. Um, so another side story is that Rickenbacker actually licensed the design and made one called the Rickenbacker Echo Sound Amp in about 1960 or 61. And they made about a hundred of those. And I had one of those. And I was, I got to back up Scotty Moore and I showed him my Rickenbacker Echo sound amp. And Scotty casually mentioned that he had two Echo Sonic amps. And I said, oh, I didn't know you had two. He said, well, yeah, I bought this second one as a spare. I mean, I didn't use it in the 50s. I bought it, you know, like in the 80s sometime, but I, I have used it as a spare. <laughs> and I said, well, 
I know I'll never be able to afford the original one that you used on the Elvis records, but if you ever want to sell that second Echo Sonic amp, let me know. And so, you know, I played with Scotty a few more times over the years and, and maybe about five years later, I get this phone call and he wanted to sell me that amp and he was just kind of in the process of getting rid of everything. And so best day of my life by far was the day that I got to go to Scotty Moore's house and just have him show me like, well, this is how you clean this head and this is how you do the tape and this is how you take it all oh. apart and and uh, I mean, you know, I, I, the whole time it was just kind of like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I'm at Scotty Moore's house and he's telling me how to use an Echosonic amp. Uh, but yeah, I still have that amplifier. So you said it's just one sound. There's even like no volume for the, the delay effect. It's just on or off. What's interesting is that he actually built in a gain control for the Echo. So you can, you know, depending on how hot your pickups are, you can turn the gain up or down. Uh, and, you know, turning the gain up on the echo kind of gives it a cool overdriven sound. Um, cool. And then you can adjust like the number of repeats. Like in, it can just be one slap back or it can go, da, 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 you know. Oh, got you. You just can't adjust the time. The time is built in. Got it. Uh, and it's basically just the length in between the record and playheads, you know. Um, well, here's an interesting question. Uh, so if you're not using that amp, what have you found in the pedal world that closely proximity uh, gets you in the proximity of that sound. Nothing sounds like the echo sonic. I, I have to say that. And the, the main reason that I've found is the echo sonic used this kind of cheap imitation JBL speaker that was made by university and uh. my Rickenbacker amp. I just had a JBL speaker in it and it sounded great, but then you put a university speaker in, which is a cheaper speaker, and it's like, oh, that sounds like Scotty Moore. Uh, um, interesting. So I don't know, maybe if you built your own kind of tweed amp clone and used a university speaker, and then, a, I don't know, maybe you could approximate it better. But I haven't found any pedal that really gets that tone. Um, that being said, I tour with a Strymon El Capistan pedal. Okay, sure. I think is maybe the the, the best sounding and, and most durable uh echo pedal out there i really like those pedals interesting i was just going to ask you so i i guess i didn't i wasn't aware that that scotty moore actually used that on the records i thought that maybe he used you know the, just a, in the studio they just put slap back on and then later on to replicate this sound in the studio he bought one of those amps but he actually used that on the elvis stuff well starting uh with mystery train i think was the first session uh before that he didn't have any echo on the guitar there was just like you said recording studio echo on the whole mix uh, right. starting with mystery train and everything else that scotty ever played with elvis he had the echo sonic amp it kind of became his thing it's like you know he, he never played without it wild that's crazy and uh you know to to his credit i i, I love scotty because he was just a, a real down to earth guy and he knew he's like, yeah, man, that's my sound. So even, even back in the eighties when he would go to Germany or places like that, he'd bring the echo sonic amp. Crazy. I don't blame him. <laughs> if that's, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, what, my, my favorite detail, and I know you'll appreciate this is that eventually Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, and DJ, the drummer, were playing to 10,000 screaming teenage girls, and he's just got this little 25-watt amp on stage, and it's not being mic'd or anything. So this is some real uh, 1957 thinking for you. 
they said, okay, we're playing in front of 10,000 people. We've really got to increase the volume. So we had Ray Butts make him two powered extension cabinets for the Echosonic amp to put on either side of the stage with four eight-inch JBLs in each cabinet. <laughs> that was Crazy. their idea. Like we are, we are going to make, we are going to be heard by ten thousand people with four eight-inch JBLs. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy crazy activity well and you know scotty had other good stories about uh you know the pa systems back then he said there was no such thing as a pa system it's like we'd come in to play for ten thousand screaming girls and they would give us the microphone that they had used for professional wrestling or the yeah. cattle auction the week before that was that was it you know yeah i remember hearing stories that even when cream toured you know a decade and some later, it was the same thing. They'd lowered the boxing mic. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Right. And, you know, we're, we're, we're about the same age. I mean, you sort of remember like when, you know, the Sure vocal masters and the, the PV SP2s and all those kind of things came in. I mean, that was, that was like, you know, the dawn of a new era. Indeed, absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about what you got going on. Of course, obviously everyone is waiting to figure out you know, I know our tours have been canceled. I got a tour of the oh, UK that's, that's supposedly supposed to happen at the end of October, first part of November. I'm like, how is that going to happen? So what are some of the things you've been doing to make, I mean, obviously, you know, the book and so on, doing live streams and all that kind of stuff. But what's your uh, what's your current situation looking like? Well, just to back up a bit, it was, I mean, you know, I hate to say it, it was a bit of a godsend that everything got canceled because it enabled me to just sit in front of the laptop and finish the book on Merle Travis. So for about the first two months of the quarantine, that's all I did was just sat there and wrote that book uh, and I got it done. So I'm glad about that. And then since then, uh, I've just started doing like these, you know, silly acapella videos. I've been watching you know, those. Those are great. Play, playing all the instruments and, uh, and doing that sort of a thing. And those have been fun and getting some good tips, you know, which really helps out. Um, the next scheduled gig that I have is August 7th. I'm going to be playing at a, uh, a car show in Wisconsin, actually, in Simcoe. Um, and then after that, I don't have anything on the books until October, and we're waiting to see if that's going to happen. So it's, it's crazy times. It's, it's really brutal. Um, you know, luckily, I've always got things that I can do to bring in money, like writing and and you know, selling old junk. And I, I do a lot of other things. I always have, but uh, it's just weird to just have everything just wiped off the map. It is, it is bizarre, but I was, um, I was well, hopefully be, I was supposed to be playing a festival in England this weekend. Just, you know, so here I am. It's unprecedented times for sure. But um, you know, it's, it does make you, um, Concentrate on different things on the home front. As you said, it's a good opportunity to get the book done. I've been uh, been doing these live streams, which have been a lot of fun, but uh, uh, practicing new stuff, writing some new stuff, and you just got to keep on keeping on. Yeah, and, you know, I, I of course, when all this started, I said, this is great. I'm finally going to have time to do some real practicing and woodshedding, and then it never happens. <laughs> I mean, we, we've really been skirting around the, uh, the the fact that I am a terrible guitar player compared to you and all these other luminaries ah. that are on your, your live stream. 
I've been watching your magnificent playing and you've you're you're fantastical. Well, you're too kind, but thank you very much. I've been enjoying the um uh when you were on uh, Marty Stewart's show, that was a great segment as well. Man, talk about pros. Those guys are pros. Like like another level type of professional. That was a, such a great experience. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was glorious. You and Kenny doing that uh that Joe Mathis tune, correct? With the That's double. That's right, neck. yeah. Yeah. And then you did the group grope on the double neck where <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That was super fun. And uh, man, I'm sure that a lot of your, uh, the people that tune in here are familiar with Marty Stewart and the fabulous superlatives. But if you aren't, you have to see them. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The best, best live band going out there today. It doesn't matter what musical genre you're talking about. Those guys are the deal. Yeah. They're the best. Excellent. You know, I was also going to say you're you're familiar with my uh, my buddy Joel Patterson as well, right? Unfortunately, every <laughs> every night when I go to sleep, I'm like, I wish I could play like Joel Patterson. <laughs> he's he's so good. He's frightening. Yeah, he's a great player, and he's a good guy. You know, years ago he was, um, uh, you know, he's from Madison. Wisconsin. Right. And he played in a band with uh, a buddy of mine, Jim Leiben. And actually he bought a 335 for me back in the day. Um, and then he went down to Chicago and began doing all the stuff that he's doing. But yeah, he's doing fantastic. He sounds great. And he's a great dude. So yeah, he, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of things sort of mediocrely, if that's a word. But man, he does so many different things so well. It's frightening. Yes, absolutely. And he's a real... You know, it's an interesting thing that, um, you know, to take stuff that's been done and breathe new life to it. You do a great job, but he does an excellent job. I mean, the stuff he does with, uh, you know, doing the Les Paul stuff and, um, and the, of course, his current Beatle thing. But, yeah, I'm going to have to have him on the show, too. That'd be fantastic. You absolutely should. Excellent. Well, listen, my friend, thanks so much for taking time out of your day and your schedule to hang with us and show us some guitars and tell us some cool stories. Folks, please check Deke out online and check out his new book for sure. When it comes out, when can we expect that rascal coming out? Supposedly by the end of the year, uh, okay. we'll, we'll see if the coronavirus thing is going to delay that or not, but we're, we're aiming for Christmas time. Excellent. Well, I look forward to checking it out for sure. I'll be reading it and I uh, hope to can... hang out with you in person. One of these days for sure. When the pestilence is passed. Yeah, absolutely. It's very nice to make your, make your acquaintance here online. Uh, likewise, my friend. Will you take care of yourself? And thanks again. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again soon. Adios.